First Peter chapter 3, I will read verses 8 through 12, which will be our text for today. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Let's pray. Father, I thank you for a text such as this. I pray that you would give us attentiveness, cause us to behave in ways in our minds, to think in ways in our hearts that, that will accord with your word and allow each other the, the opportunity to listen as well as we are in this room together. Pray that you would give us clarity as we seek to know what it is you would have us do. I pray for encouragement and for trust. I pray that we would keep our eyes focused on the hope that you have promised us. In Jesus' name, amen. So I want to say a few things as to the structure of this passage and how it fits into the structure of the letter overall. If you're following along in the notes, you can see that I think this is set up in a chiastic structure. The way it starts is by Peter explaining to us what our new identity is in Christ. In chapter 2, verses 9 through 10, we're called a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, so that you may proclaim the excellencies of Him who called you out of darkness into His marvelous light. Does that set the agenda for your life? Do you need something like a life plan or a motto or a purpose statement? This, proclaiming God's excellencies, this is to what we have been called. This is what we are saved and sanctified and sealed to accomplish. This is what we are to do while we are here on this forlorn and languishing earth. How does your life stack up? How does our church stack up to that high calling of proclaiming His excellencies? It's not a discouragement. It's the only thing that really has lasting value, so we need to see to it. So again, how do we do that? How, how practically are we to proclaim His excellencies? And, and that's the question hanging in the air after chapter 2, verse 10, and Peter goes into a lengthy discussion about submission as the answer to this question. How do we proclaim His excellencies? He begins by speaking about honorable conduct before the Gentiles. And I think the point of verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2 is to say, you're meant now as this royal priesthood, this holy nation, the, the way you proclaim His excellencies is by living your life in an honorable way before the world so that 
the Gentiles may glorify God on the day of visitation. After that, in honorable conduct, which kind of sets the agenda with all of us together before the world as a witness to the world and a witness against the world, then he goes into this structure of different ways and flavors of honorable conduct. We have to keep that idea, this idea of being a witness to and even against the world as the frame of mind, or else we'll lose our place and it will just feel to us like Peter is just changing the subject and going from person to person and kind of losing his place a little bit. We also have to keep a laser focus on this idea of proclaiming his excellencies with an aim to actually convert and persuade others. Then he talks about being submissive and honoring to authority. Many of the same ideas that we read in Romans 13. The point of the context is this, that the way you behave in the world, especially in the way you treat and respond to the governing authorities, is a matter of evangelism more than it is a matter of anything else. Will there be times where we must obey God rather than men? Of course. But for most of our days, those conflicts won't be very pronounced. And as we do the mundane things of our life, the call is to be honoring So as to commend our Lord to the Gentiles. Then he speaks of submission to master. So we're going down, you see. We're all of us together, then submission to authorities, all of us, and then down to the lowest level of a person in the church. There were many slaves in that day, so he exhorts even them to submit to their masters in line with this whole perspective, this whole purpose of proclaiming his excellencies. Even if you find yourself in a very bad situation, this is the point, even if you find yourself a slave in the first century, the mission does not change. The pattern is the same. We're to follow the example of Jesus. There's something we're emulating. And then we get to the center, what I believe is the center of this whole section, from starting in chapter 2, verse 9, to the end of our passage today, verse 12 of chapter 3, the example of Christ. He's in the lowliest position, as it were, as the structure of this passage unfolds. In this context of emulating the submission of Jesus to the will of the Father, even with unjust rulers, it makes sense then to point to different stations that believers are in. And it makes sense in view of the whole point of the passage. The themes in this, these verses, chapter 2, verses 21 through 25 are the themes of this whole section. And and if this structure that I'm commending is accurate, then the very center of this whole section is verse 23. He committed no sin. Neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. Verse 23, the very center of, How does your life line up with verse 23? Could you actually put your name in place of he or him? Where it does not line up with the example of Jesus, that's where we need to change. So then he talks to wives. Makes sense now, if we're following the example of Jesus, then no matter what station you find yourself in, no matter what situation you find yourself in, you're to emulate Jesus. So he tells us how to do that. 
It parallels slaves then in the chiastic structure because of the bad situation a first century believing wife would have been in if her husband were a Gentile or a non-believer. A wife was, in many ways, the most disadvantaged person in that culture other than a slave. So the one side, as you can see, of the structure is in public or, or all of us together socially, and then the other side is the family. And he tells husbands to honor their wives so that your prayers may not be hindered. That's the shortest exhortation in this whole section, and it's the only one without the word submission, but is the strongest command to honor because it comes with a warning. It's the only one with a warning. And that this idea of honoring to honor wives is what I think links it to the honor we're supposed to render to the emperor. So it all, it all fits in parallel. And then that means that this passage that we have come to today parallels verses 11 through 12 in chapter 2. So this is what I'm saying, and it'll, it'll become clear as to why we're going through this later on. But verses 8 through 12 then parallel verses 11 through 12 in chapter 2. It'll be very important to keep that in mind as we go, especially when it comes to interpreting verse 9. And so now we come to verse 8. In this whole structure, in this whole uh, passage, exhorting us to submission and to honorable conduct, verse 8, calling this life together. So how... The only thing he hasn't addressed so far is how we are to be towards each other. And this is what I believe he's doing in verse 8. In one verse, Peter gives us enough instruction to occupy our consideration and our zeal and energies for the rest of our lives. There are many sermons that could be preached just from verse 8. And I know that you know that I want to, but we're going to try to summarize it. We will get to the end of verse 12, Lord willing. What does God want from me? What does He really want out of my life? All this theology stuff is really hard to understand. The Bible even says that about itself. Peter says there are some things in them that are hard to understand, speaking of the writings of Paul. What do we really need to do? Well, verse 8. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. And a humble mind. Friends, brothers, sisters, we trip ourselves up and get into trouble when we move off the central significance of those commands and focus on other things. The whole verse is just seven words in Greek, and there are just five imperatives. There are just one word each as he summarizes what we're to do. You want simple and clear? I'll give you five words. The reason the church in our nation is so impotent to change scarcely anything is because we don't obey verse 8. The reason we lack influence And the ability to alter things is not because we don't have enough money. It's not because we lack lobbyists. It's not because we lack believers in office. It is not because we lack fancy buildings or bands or fog machines. It is not because we don't have the right programs or preachers or seminaries 
or conferences or marketing campaigns is because we do not prioritize obedience to these commands. There's nothing special about this verse. Verse 8, this is everywhere in the New Testament. Because we do not have unity of mind, because we do not have sympathy, because we do not have brotherly love or a tender heart, because we do not have a humble mind, that's why we can't change a thing. Equality. He begins by addressing all of us, and this isn't one of the imperatives, but I think the one of the one of the things we're summoned to is equality, a perspective of equality. He says, finally, and I think that indicates that these verses that we're studying today are the end of a major section, as I've argued. The next section begins in verse 13, where he says, now, he says, all of you, and that indicates, of course, that he's addressing the whole congregation. All of those who are Christian, all who call the name of the Lord, these exhortations, what we're supposed to be doing towards one another, are all the same, no matter how much authority, power, influence you have or don't have. Even though, depending on your station in life and what you are, you might be called to do different things. That's why we have the passages that we've gone through. If you're a slave, if you're a wife, if you're a husband, no matter where you are, there are specifics. Yet, the most important things about the Christian life that you and I are supposed to do The things that matter most to the Lord have nothing to do with us being a man or woman, a slave or free, a Jew or a Gentile. The things that matter most to the Lord is that we would have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. It's the same. All of you. This verse then strongly asserts the equality of all believers. Because we are under the same primary directive, as it were. To be this way to each other, from the least of them to the greatest. Even though, granted, we'll have different things that we got to do. Like, right? That's why we have the passages leading up to this. Emulation of the Lord Jesus will look different depending on your station in life. But the objective of Christ's likeness is the same. And as you seek to emulate him, there is enough in him for you to strive to emulate. So we are equal. We have equal footing before the Lord. And these commands equalize us in the sense that the job, the call, the summons as a Christian is the same for all of us. And then he gets into the imperatives of the text. He says, unity, have unity of mind. It's one word in Greek. Uh, Literally, it could be rendered something like this. Have the same kind of mind, or we could paraphrase it this way. Have hearts of one accord. If there's anything that has been a priority of our ministry here since uh, the Shires moved here in 2018, it has been unity in the body of Christ. Why is that? Why does it matter so much that we prioritize unity? Well, if you study the teachings of Jesus enough in the upper room discourse, particularly John 17, the high priestly prayer, the way that the world will know that we are in fact his people, that God has in fact sent Jesus, and that God loves us is by our love and unity with one another. There is then no more effective way to commend the gospel than by unity in the body of Christ. There is no more effective way than to change the world or to evangelize or to offer an effective apologetic 
to the world than through unity and love in the body of Christ. But what does all this mind stuff have unity of mind? This is why we do much of what we do as a church. It's not just to come together to learn more about God, each of us individually. We come together to learn so that we can share the same convictions of heart. That we would know and share in the same knowledge. We're to grow in unity of mind. It's not just that we like each other and like hanging out with each other like some spiritual clique. It's that we have conviction regarding who God is. And we know that we share the same convictions about who He is. And we exhort each other in the, in line with those things that we believe about Him and we share it and we hold fast to it with equal zeal. That's what it's about. I just want to plead with you for unity in our congregation. There are so many dangers, so many pitfalls, so many, uh, hindrances or opponents to unity. It is very easily destroyed. Hard to build, it's difficult to defend, it's easy to destroy. Sometimes I wonder, you know, there, there's, this, there's a sense, especially in the South, that, that these churches have a sweet sense of unity. And when you, you walk in and everyone's happy and loving, and there's this sense that can happen, well, well, unity and love and all this, that just develops over time. In the same way that you don't wake up more spiritually mature just by accident and just kind of stumble into spiritual maturity, a church doesn't stumble into unity, especially not unity of mind. It has to be worked for. If you're going to plant your flag somewhere, brother or sister in Christ, may it be the value and the height and the difficult calling of unity in the body of Christ. It is a worthy quest. And we need a plan, each of us, to work on this. Peace needs men and women dedicated to keeping it. Unity demands to have guardians. We need to have our ear to the ground to listen for anything that would come in and disrupt the unity, even if it's in our own hearts. And we need to be ready to apply the soothing balm of the love and high calling of Jesus into every situation so that our unity doesn't rupture. He also says sympathy. So have unity of mind and sympathy. Literally, this word could be rendered uh, with suffering or suffering with someone or having common feelings with them. So above, we're supposed to share the same mind. And now in this word, we're to share the same feeling. In short, put yourself in other people's shoes, as we would say it today, and consider how things affect them. In other places, other translations, they render this word compassion, right? That's that's sharing the same passions or feeling the same thing with them. It's difficult, I think, to positively define sympathy or compassion or pity, theologically or technically. Um, And as as a side note, I want to say that biblically, there's really not a big distinction really at all between sympathy and empathy. I know our culture likes to make a big deal about that, but the ideas are pretty much the same biblically. Sympathy or empathy joins with the other person in their joy or pain 
in their blessing or affliction as best we can for the purpose of sharing in their blessing and helping in their trial. That's my working definition for sympathy. You could probably improve on it, but I'll say it again. Sympathy or empathy joins with another person in their joy or pain, blessing or affliction, as best we can for the purpose of sharing in their blessing and helping in their trial. There are so many ways to hurt people, and most of them begin with an unwillingness to be sympathetic or empathetic. You can have pride and you can look down on others, especially if you just think they should just get it together. It's a failure to empathize, a failure to sympathize. And it's easier, I think, to point to things that are definitely not sympathy, that are definitely not empathy. There's a long list of ways that we can try to help where you're not really helping because there's a lack of empathy. Here's some pitfalls to avoid while trying to show sympathy. These are for free. Sympathy is not telling a person, I understand what you're going through. The same thing happened to me or something like that. Rather, you should have a spirit of, I will work to understand what you're going through. It is not, I have the answers or I've been there and gotten the t-shirt, right? We can have that air of posture towards people. Rather, the posture should be, here is how the Lord is helping me and how he got me through this or that. And here is who he is. We just have no idea what people actually deal with. And there may be 50 different things that are affecting the person in front of you that you have no idea about. So you can commend the Lord and you can commend how he has shown mercy to you instead of sizing up the situation and believing you have all the answers. Sympathy or empathy is not giving the sense of this too shall pass. Because it might not. Imagine if one of Job's friends had said that to him. This too shall pass. That doesn't address his children in the ground. That doesn't address the fact that his wife wishes that he would curse God and die. It's just a season. It's just a phase. Rather, this is the posture of sympathy. I am here with you. It it says when, when Jesus is appointing the apostles, the central phrase to explain what Jesus is doing is that uh, he appointed the apostles to be with him. Right? Before they go to mission, before they go out and do stuff, it's to be with him. And his promise to us is, I will be with you. Right? He's not going to make it all happy and good and make all the problems go away, but he'll be with us. Here's the thing. You can't carry another person's burden, really. You can try to help them And take them to the place they need to go. But their burden, their suffering is in many ways theirs to bear. And you can be encouraging alongside. In the same way Sam picks up Frodo and carries him as far as he needs to go. He can't take the ring himself. But he's willing to come alongside and bolster him up so that he can finish what he needs to do. That ought to be our posture. The way to help people. The way to be sympathetic or empathetic in a biblical way is to go back one step, hold them up, carry them to the Lord so that they see His goodness. And then he says brotherly love. So, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love. Literally, show brotherly or sisterly love or affection. One word in Greek. 
We are a new family now. This royal priesthood, this holy nation, this people for God's own possession, we're a family. Many of us may have been raised in a culture where the idea of blood being thicker than water was taken as gospel truth. And that is simply not the case. There is a me and mine mentality that runs counter to the family of God. I've said this before and I will say it again. The church is not a confederacy of families. The conflict that Jesus promises is that allegiance to Him will start balkanizing even families. Matthew 10, verses 34 through 36. Do not think that I have come to bring peace to the earth. That's shocking. I have not come to bring peace, but a sword. For I have come to set a man against his father, a daughter against her mother, and a daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a person's enemies will be those of his own household. That's what was happening in the church for the people that Peter was writing to. Between husbands and wives. One a believer, one not a believer. The the line of the border of God's kingdom cuts through families. It's not a geopolitical place anymore. It's the spiritual entity that sets even father against son, daughter against mother. And so this new family that we belong to, we're summoned to then show brotherly love, to treat each other in the family of God like we are actually a family. So, while we should acknowledge that there are unique responsibilities within your nuclear or biological family, the family of God is a higher priority in your life than your biological family. Because only one's going to last eternally. And that theme of imperishable has been there in First Peter this whole time, right? There's the, the living and abiding word of God. You've been born not of perishable seed, but of imperishable with the imperishable beauty of the gentle and quiet spirit. So this idea is kind of a sub-theme throughout the letter so far and that this family, the family of God, is an imperishable family. While the gospel ruptures relationships within families, yet underneath it all, God is building His family and it will not perish. I've seen many believing families drift towards this me and mine mentality. And the church, accountability to the church, protection of the unity of the church, submission to spiritual authorities, that's all sidelined for the sake of their biological families. Show brotherly affection because this new family is your family. This is the family that you will belong to forever if you're really a Christian. And this calls our confession on the carpet, brothers and sisters. If you really believe that you belong to this new family, if you love Jesus, then you'll love your brothers and sisters too. It will be difficult. It is said you can choose your friends, but you can't choose your family. It's the same in the family of God. It is by God's choosing And His regenerative work, His birthing. The Father, interestingly enough, is said to be the one that births us again in 1 Peter. Amazing. So He's creating this family. And what do you think of your brothers and sisters? In 
First Peter chapter one, verse 22, it says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart. Amazing. Peter says that the reason we're born again is to love one another. Love is the end of the law, as we read in Romans 13 before the sermon. Love is the fulfillment of the law. And again, you don't stumble into this or wake up one morning and all of a sudden, oh wow, I love everyone in the body of Christ. It has to be worked for. There's a lot of heart work and actions to develop This kind of love. And it starts, let me just say this, it starts by adoring the Lord Jesus. Because the more you adore and love and treasure Him, the more you will adore and love and treasure all those who are from Him. And all who belong to Him. Some who even, you know, maybe low-key boast their love of God, boast their love of the Bible and love of theology. Some of those people are the people that show the least amount of love towards brother and sister in Christ. There's this, there's this monasticism that takes place in the church even now where we gravitate towards God and just me and Jesus and then all the, all the brothers and sisters, they're over here and they're immature and oh, if only they could be as mature as I am. I love Jesus and that's just not the way of Christ at all. Love of Jesus and a desire to be like Him will eventually lead to love of brothers and sisters because this is what He came to do. He came to bring many sons to glory. Do our actions as our pattern of life emulate His in that regard? He also says tenderness. A tender heart, He says. Finally, all of you have unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, a tender heart. Literally, it could be something like this. Having a uh, having good bowels, right? It's the same word we looked, to, looked at in Ephesians 4, verse 32, the first sermon this year. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. It, uh, you know, in, in our culture, in Western culture, it's our heart that is the seat of emotions. In first century terminology, it would have been your gut, right? Have you ever loved someone and cared for someone so deeply that you felt it in your gut? And the command is not to have the same type of emotion of just raw compassion towards every person that you encounter all the time. None of us could handle that. But the command is to be willing to feel this way. To to work to cultivate in your own heart a preparedness to feel compassion and pity. Hard-hearted people have a hard time empathizing or sympathizing. This is what the gospel speak of Jesus that moved with pity, moved with compassion. Right. So when he saw someone in their need or in their affliction or them being harassed like sheep without a shepherd, he was moved with pity, moved with compassion. We need to have the kinds of hearts that are willing and ready to be moved with pity and compassion. He also says a humble mind. Literally, it could be rendered something like this. Having a low understanding of oneself or holding oneself in low esteem. You know, there's another passage in the New Testament that uh, kind of follows the pattern that we saw with this chiastic structure of going 
starting up at one end, going down to Christ's humiliation, and then back up again. You can see it in Philippians chapter 2, if you want to turn there. Philippians chapter 2, I'll start reading in verse 3. The same word for humility is used. Do nothing from selfish ambition or conceit, but in humility count others more significant than yourselves. Let each of you look not only to his own interest, but also to the interest of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped but emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being found, uh, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. So we come all the way down, and the way of Christ is humility. It's self-abasement. He held himself in low esteem. He didn't count even his life as of any value nor as precious to himself. And he gave it for the sake of others. He considered your eternal good as being of more value than his own life. This is the humility of mind that you and I are called to emulate. If there was anyone who ever lived who had a right to not humble himself, it was the Lord Jesus. I mean, Peter even says, Lord, you know all things. Like just that one facet of what it means to be God, knowing all things. And he humbled himself still. We can be so selfish and so prideful. And there, all the while, is the example of Jesus, whom we say we love so much. And the unifying theme of his life from start to finish was abasing and humbling himself. What I'm about to say is a stark claim. Maybe it will make you upset. But I will die on this hill. And hopefully it will show you where my priorities as a pastor are And where my priorities towards you as a brother in Christ are. More harm is done to the cause of Christ in this world by proud and selfish Christians than all the forces of evil in the world combined. That's the truth of it, brothers and sisters. Because we fail to be like our Lord. Verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For to this you have been called, to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. So beyond just setting up the structure of this and trying to show uh, the parallels there, why, why bring that structure up at the first? Because I'm arguing for a particular way of taking this text. My claim then is that verse 9 and the exhortations that follow are not primarily talking about how we should respond to reviling and evil in the church. Though that's how some interpreters take it. They they take this, uh, I think, too much as a unity 
and don't see the parallel to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2. And so they say, well, the do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, that's talking about how we respond to people in the church. And while that would definitely apply, I think the main point is the parallel to verses 11 and 12 in chapter 2. Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. I mean, we're supposed to respond differently if there is an evil person among us in the church. Right? We're even commanded to purge the evil person from among us. So while we're obviously not supposed to repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, even if that person calls themselves a Christian and is in a part of our church, and sadly, many of you, probably the majority of your suffering and the majority of your mistreatment is from someone within the church. But this is primarily, I think, about how we're to respond with the unity and love and sympathy and tenderness of heart towards each other, how we're to respond when we are treated with evil or reviling from the world. So, that's how I take the text. This is the final application of how the example of Christ uh, is, is instructive for the whole family of God. Now, all of us together now, again, remember how I summarized verses 11 and 12, all of us together now as a witness to and against the world. That's what's happening here. All of us together now in not repaying evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but blessing. So, here's the logic of the passage. It kind of unfolds for us Neatly, he says, do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling. This is the problem with equitable retribution. Some big words for you on a Sunday morning. The problem with payback or treating your enemies the way they treat you is that you're taking the place of God and you're jumping in front of him in his prerogative of administering justice and retribution. That's the problem with payback. It is God's prerogative to bring vengeance. Vengeance is mine, I will repay. This is the comfort that the psalmist has in Psalm 73. Truly, you set them in slippery places. You make them fall to ruin. God says of Himself, their foot shall slide in due time. Even if you are able to pay back someone perfectly, not too much, not too little, just what they deserve, then all you have done is remove the need for God to come and intervene on your behalf. This idea of justice and retribution from the Lord and the scale of balances is, is present throughout this whole chiastic structure from beginning in verse uh, 9 on, uh, of chapter 2 on to the end of our passage today. It's in the very first section, he says, so that the Gentiles will glorify God on the day of vindication. It's in the middle when it says of Jesus, he continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. And it's here in the other bookend of the section. It's implicit within the logic all the way until the end of verse 12 where he says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. So instead of giving people in the church what they deserve, If there is an evil person or a reviler in our midst, instead of retribution, we give them what they need in church discipline or, if necessary, excommunication or get the authorities involved. And instead of giving people or anyone outside the church or within what they deserve in payback, 
If they are evil to us and they revile us, we should give them the opposite of what they deserve, namely, blessing. But on the contrary, bless. It's not just passivity that you're called to. Don't do anything mean in response. You're supposed to find an opportunity and a way to bless them. This is exactly what Jesus preached and taught. Love your enemies. Do good to those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. Yes, you may have to get the authorities involved if laws are being broken. Yes, when it is uh, it, it, when it is for other people, we are supposed to contend for the downtrodden. We're not just supposed to let injustice abound. God says through Isaiah the prophet, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. But there is a difference between seeking justice and payback. And it plays out all the time in our heart when we respond to cursing and reviling and evil in anger, bitterness, and hate. We need to understand that there is something bigger going on. And something more important to gain than just balancing the scales of justice. The real opportunity is to transform the world by obeying verse 8 internally. And obeying verse 9 as it relates to the world. One of the commentaries uh, that has been helpful in this series, First Peter, the commentator shares a story. Uh, she was teaching through First Peter in the seminary class and a student shared this story. There was a Christian soldier living in a barracks with his unit. Each evening, when he would read his Bible and pray before retiring, he was reviled and insulted by the soldier across the aisle. One night, a pair of muddy combat boots came flying at the Christian. The next morning, the hostile soldier found his boots at the foot of his bed, cleaned and polished and ready for inspection. Several soldiers in this company eventually became Christians as a result of the inner strength of the one who could return blessing for insult. And that is so, so simple, but it is so radically transforming to the world if we can respond this way. And with respect, this is not the kind of response that is being encouraged by many preachers and podcasters nowadays. And the point is, in connecting it to verse 8, is when we live together like verse 8 commands us, when we have brotherly love, when we have sympathy of mind, when we have tenderness of heart towards each other, we can be bold and compassionate towards the world. We then have the emotional and spiritual resources to respond in kindness when we're reviled and treated as evildoers. I think one of the reasons we're unable to respond with this type of blessing to the wrongdoer is that we don't have healthy churches. We don't have the safety and protection of a loving church. And added to that, and partly because of it, we're not secure in the love of the Father. Being secure in the love of someone else gives you the ability to be brave and courageous and to bless instead of rendering payback. And then the logic of the passage continues to unfold. The Lord brings equity with blessing. We're not just supposed to continue blessing and blessing for no reason. We come full circle with this dynamic of payback and retribution or reward. There's so many rich things going on with this statement. He says, for to this you were called. 
Meaning that this was the original calling when you became a Christian. This is what you signed up for. For to this you were called, that you may obtain a blessing. Here's the logic of the passage. Number one, the righteous being mistreated by those who hate God creates an imbalance in the scales of justice. The calling of the Lord on our lives, following the example of Jesus, is not to seek to balance those scales through retribution or revenge. Rather, we are to create further imbalance on the scales of justice by doing more kind things to those who treat us poorly, by blessing them. It's the opposite of what they deserve, and that creates further imbalance. So then, the Lord will bless us in His own time and deal with the wicked in His own time and finally bring balance to the scales of justice in our case. The phrase, to this you were called, is another reason that I see this whole connection in this passage and it as a unity. It, 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 the idea pops up, though not mentioned explicitly, when he says chosen race, a people for his own possession. God has called us and drawn us in for a purpose. And it's mentioned again in the middle of the passage, in the example of Jesus, where he says, for to this you have been called. For Christ also suffered for you, back in chapter 2 leaving you an example that you might follow in His footsteps. What is God's calling on your life? There's a lot of talk about that nowadays. And there's, there's all these energies and, and passions about trying to figure out what it, what it is that God wants out of your life. What should I do for God? It's to follow the example of Jesus. And specifically, that doesn't mean living in the Middle East, wearing sandals, turning water into wine, and dying on a cross for sinners. But it does mean that when you are reviled and treated poorly by others, it is our divine calling from God. It is our warfare, don't you see? To respond with blessing. Christian, it is your job and your calling and our calling together to be the bigger person and seek peace. You can still seek freedom, you can still defend your legal rights, and you can still defend yourself physically and in other ways, and keep this command. Those are rare cases. They're not even really exceptions to the rule. We're talking about something else. Bless. Find a way to bless instead of payback, retribution, revenge. And then we're given a quotation from Psalm 34, where Peter tells us what I believe is a life that pleases the Lord. This is a substantial quotation by New Testament standards. This is the psalm that David wrote after he was delivered from Abimelech, the Philistine king. We don't have time to read it, but if you want to, when you go home, read verses 1 through 11 as the setup for the verses where Peter quotes it. Here, the whole point of the passage, all the themes at work is, is this. Uh, Where will our help come from? Who will deliver us? Are we just to be regarded as sheep to be slaughtered as we try to repay those who do evil to us with blessing? Is it just going on and on and on like this while, while the scales of justice continue becoming more and more imbalanced? Should we fight? Take up arms, stress, and be angry all the time and anxious about what is going on? Should we pray in kind the mistreatment and opposition of the world? No. 
we bless in return. Not because just that Christians are called to suffer. That is true, but that is only part of the answer. The full truth is that Christians are called to bless even if we suffer because the Lord will act on our behalf in His own time. The rubber really hits the road in our faith at this precise point. Don't you see? Do we really believe in a day coming where God will vindicate the righteous and bring recompense on the wicked? If you don't have that as a major factor in your emotional matrix, you will not be able to obey this. You cannot render blessing in return for reviling an evil treatment if you don't really believe there's a day coming where justice will be served. It gives us motivations for living a righteous life. We'll go through this Quickly, the main exhortation is, of course, verse 8 and 9, but he grounds it in the Old Testament, saying that this has been the calling for the people of God for centuries, for millennia. Whoever desires to love life and see good days. It is not wrong to desire to see good days and to have an abundance of life. And it is not wrong for that to be the motivation behind living righteously. You just have to define good and life in biblical ways. You should be motivated by the blessing of God that He promises. The best blessing now and in the future and forever is the person of Jesus Christ and His Spirit. And He's given us those things. All He has. There's this idea of disinterested virtue. That we should want to do good for good's sake. And and that... The self or, or, I, or a desire to gain from doing good shouldn't ever factor in. And that is nonsense. God is not honored by disinterested servants. You should want to gain a blessing. The very best thing from God through living righteously. And I think this is where many Christians go wrong. They think, well, I'm already due for the best blessings in the world. I'm going to heaven one day because I believe in Jesus. So so why endure mistreatment to gain a further blessing? I already got the blessing secured. The point is here, you will gain a blessing then and now through emulating the response of Jesus. So understand, reverse it. There are many blessings that you are missing out on right now, here and now, and in the hereafter, if you decide to repay reviling for reviling and evil for evil. He gives us the outline of the righteous life. Whoever desires to love life and seek good days, he gives us four clauses. Let him keep his tongue from evil, his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. Let him keep his tongue from evil. This is different than the clause below, right? We're we're supposed to keep our lips from speaking deceit, but he says keep his tongue from evil. There's a way to be evil in your speaking even without uttering any deceit. You can be harsh. You can be overly blunt. You can be hurtful. You can be brutish. You can be abusive. You can be crude. You can gossip and slander without uttering a lie at all. 
Keep your tongue from all of that, he says. Let him keep his lips from speaking deceit. Honesty and clarity, no false teaching, no intent to mislead, no exaggeration, no misrepresentation, no plagiarism, no taking credit for things that you didn't do, no following, th- uh, following through on the things you say you will do, not boasting. Why does all this matter and why is this part of a godly life in this context. I think it's pointing back to the example of Jesus. He committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. Let him turn away from evil and do good. It's a very basic statement about the nature of the life that pleases God. But it's not so easy, of course. Literally, we might render the statement here, he must turn away from evil. The word is similar to the word used in Hebrews where it says put foreign armies to flight. So routing them, sending them away. The idea is this, that you need to rout yourself away from evil. It is intentional. It is, it is even aggressive to turn your, the course of your life away from evil. Let him seek peace and pursue it. This could be a summary of the posture and attitude of heart and the consequent actions we are supposed to have towards one another. Even those who revile us and even those who are evil towards us. To seek, as much as it depends on us, peace. He says, pursue it. It is more than just waiting around for peace to happen. Peace not only needs guardians and defenders, it needs founders and creators. Will you be one of them? Will you join Christ in His mission? To be a founder of peace. And then he tells us the rewards for righteousness. He says, for the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. This again, I think, links the whole passage together because it connects back to the exhortation to husbands. In verse 7, he says, likewise, husbands, live with your wives in an understanding way, showing honor to the woman as the weaker vessel. Since they are heirs with you of the grace of life, so that your prayers may not be hindered. So this idea of hindrance of prayers and God being open to prayers is linking the passage together. And this is the summary of the blessing. What is, when he says that you may receive a blessing. What is the blessing that God will give to us as we repay those who treat us evil and revile us with blessing? Well, his eyes will be on you. And his ear will be open to your prayer. Those who are eagerly seeking righteousness in the world, things may not always go your way. They may end very poorly, like many of those who have gone before us. Your life might even look like that of Job's. But the eye of the Lord will be upon you. His favor will be towards you. And he does listen to your prayer. He does not hinder them. And one day he will act as your redeemer and raise you from the dust and vindicate you over and against all of our enemies. Here's the point. God delights to behold and reward those who are willing to live and endure like his son Jesus did. What is the life that pleases God? That which conforms to the example of Jesus. What kind of blessings should you be after? The blessings that Jesus got. If you want to go back to Philippians chapter 2, the, the, the 
the conclusion of that quotation that we didn't read, beginning in verse 9, Philippians 2, verse 9. Therefore God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. Jesus is vindicated by God's activity. The taunt against Jesus on the cross is the same taunt that we receive. This is the reviling that we receive. They trust in God. Let God deliver them, for surely He delights in them. Don't you see, God is setting this stage to answer the question, who made the right decision? God is setting this up for a great role reversal on the last day. One of the ways that God will prove that He is right and justify himself, is to prove on that last day that those who trusted in him were right as well. In the same way that, God, uh, that Job maintained his trust in the Lord throughout, that he made the right decision, he did not give up on God, even though everything in his life told him not to. That is how we will be vindicated as well. It will be a great turning of the tables on that day. And then we see the reward, put it in air quotes, reward for unrighteousness. He says, but the face of the Lord is against those who do do evil. It's difficult for us to understand the the intensity of this statement. Notice, though, the, the anthropomorphic language in these verses. The eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. His ear is open to their prayer, but the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. What does it mean for your face to be against someone or something? Well, it's the opposite of the blessing we read about in number six, last benediction. This is the blessing that the priests were to put the name of God among the people. It says, the Lord bless you and keep you. The Lord make his face to shine upon you and be gracious to you. The Lord lift up his countenance upon you and give you peace. The opposite of that then, of God making His face towards you, is is all of His blessing, all of His positive effects, all of His goodwill being reversed, being against you. This is how R.C. Sproul inverted that blessing into help us understanding what the curse is. He said, may the Lord curse you and abandon you. May the Lord keep you in darkness and give you only judgment without grace. That's what it means for the face of the Lord to be against you. This is the sense that we mean in the songs that speak about what happened on the cross. The Father turns His face away. It's not that the Father couldn't look at Jesus. right? He beholds everything. He knows everything. He's sustaining the existence of all, even subatomic particles, always. It would be more right to say the father turned his face against him. But that doesn't fit well with the melody. It was not that the father could not look at Jesus. It was that he turned his face against him in wrath and fury. As he became the detestable thing. He became the curse and he became sin in our place. 
And friends, this is not explicit in the text here. I think it is implicit underneath. We're to follow the example of Jesus in his responding to cursing and reviling and giving blessing only in return. But this is the one place where not only you are not supposed to follow the example of Jesus, but the only place where you cannot follow the example of Jesus. This is called the dereliction, theologically, when the father utterly abandoned the son, relationally. He turned his face against him in wrath and fury. And understand this, this is one of the most heartbreaking and tragic things about the cross. Jesus fulfilled all the commands of God. He fulfilled all of these difficult commands about returning blessing for reviling and returning good for evil. And yet, He was the one that the Father rejected. He turned all of His wrath, all of His power and will against Him in that moment in the dereliction. Believer, you never have to endure that. This is what is so sad. Like I said, just tragedy about the cross that Jesus did it perfectly. And He endured all of that for you. This is what makes the cross the foundation of our hope. He was abandoned by the Father, even as He entrusted Himself to Him who judges justly. And this is why the resurrection must happen. Because the scale of balances have to be corrected. And in Jesus' case, it was infinite in balance. Because He did it perfectly. And then received nothing but abandonment from the Father and rejection and wrath. And so the resurrection has to happen and He has to be given the name that is above every name. And this is why you can I and I can have confidence as we join Him in His resurrection. Those who trust in God like Jesus did have to have an end like Jesus did too. And this is the offer of salvation as well. Jesus was utterly abandoned by the Father with nothing but wrath and fury from Him so you wouldn't have to. And this... Friends, is what we are trying, even in our willingness to endure mistreatment and sorrows. This is what we're trying to commend to you so that you won't have to be abandoned by the Father as well. So that you would never have to know what it means to have the Father's face turned against you. Please, turn to Him today and may today be the day of salvation. Let's pray. Father, what a love, what a cost that Your Son Jesus put forward all the effort of soul and will and mind to keep every one of Your commands, especially these most difficult ones about not returning, reviling for reviling. And yet, His portion, His lot, was to be cut off from the land of the living. Thank you for raising him from the dust and giving him the authority and power to give eternal life to whomever he will. Help us follow in his example and be grateful that at that precise point we don't have to because of your mercy. In Jesus' name, amen.